Well, if you have a Bible there, you can turn again to Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to be studying this evening these first 12 verses of the chapter that we read earlier together. We're thinking this evening of the theme, the demands of wisdom, the demands of wisdom. Who runs your life? Who is involved when it comes to you making your biggest decisions? Who or what do you trust in for those moments in life, the big moments and the everyday moments of decision making? We live in our part of the world in a, in a culture of what you might call meism, meaning that people like to believe we're accountable to no one other than the person we see in the mirror each morning. I don't have to think about the potential consequences of the words I speak or text or post online. I'll use whatever words I want. I don't have to worry what anyone might think about what I wear. I'll just wear whatever I want. I'm perfectly well educated and smart enough and good enough to make my own decisions. You'll be familiar perhaps with the well-known and often quoted words of a poem that Nelson Mandela took to heart during his years of imprisonment in South Africa. It's become in many ways the catchphrase of our generation. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is very much the mindset of our culture. You can just think of some of the advertising slogans you see on TV or on your phones. Obey your thirst. Power to you. See what you can do. And taken to extremes, this is the thinking behind the demands that people be allowed to change gender without having to speak to a doctor or uh, claiming a gender that quite clearly is, is not their own. It's a kind of thinking that attacks the natural purpose-built designs of family and parents and children, men and women, that God has put in place. Meism can surface, though, in much more subtle ways in our families, in our workplaces, sadly, even in our churches. And as we make our way through these early sections of Proverbs, we've been given the antidote in many ways to meism and its foolish ways. That antidote is given in Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And chapter 3 continues to build upon that statement in Proverbs 1 verse 7. Once again here we have a father speaking to a son, urging upon him the way of wisdom. And he makes clear in this section to his son that wisdom is demanding. That the way of wisdom is difficult, but ultimately it is also rewarding. And so we want to think tonight about at least three of wisdom's demands as we have them here in Proverbs 3, 1 to 12. First of all, wisdom demands that we remember what matters Wisdom demands that we remember what matters. And we see this in verses 1 to 4. Uh, if you look at verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. As we study the book of Proverbs closely, we will notice that although it is, as I've said before, it's not a book of promises. It's not just saying do this and that will definitely happen in every case. But nonetheless, Proverbs is a book closely tied to and based on the covenantal commands and promises of God to his people. Uh, whole studies, probably whole books, have been written on the relationship between Proverbs and Deuteronomy, for example. And in Deuteronomy, Moses gives a, a second generation of Israelites, uh, the, 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 generation, the children of 
the parents who had fallen in the wilderness because of their sin, he gives that second generation the Ten Commandments and a summary of the other commandments attached to them. And he gives them God's covenant promises, which are obey me and prosper, disobey me and be cursed. And part of the language of covenant friends, whether it be in Deuteronomy or here in Proverbs, is that we remember God and his word. That we do not forget God and his word. To remember in in the scriptures means more than when you or I often talk about remembering or forgetting. I might find tomorrow morning that I've forgotten where I put my car keys, but it's probably not that big a deal. It probably doesn't matter very much. The problem will probably be solved very quickly when I move from the kitchen to the living room or to uh, the hall, pretty much the only three places the keys ever are. Uh, And it it won't matter within minutes. Certainly by the end of the day, I'll probably not even remember that I'd forgotten where my car keys were. But in the Bible, to remember something is to live by it. It has an impact on every day, every times, every moment of your lives. You store it away in, in your heart. You make daily decisions based upon it and in light of it. And so in verse 1, the father says, My son, do not forget my teaching. Remember this. This really matters. This is what is to direct and guide and impact your life. Let your heart keep my commandments, he says. Notice verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The language again there, friends, is the language of God's covenant. Steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how God had described himself when he spoke to Moses. You remember that self-disclosure God made, Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's the kind of God that he is. These are the kinds of promises he makes. Steadfast, faithful promises. And that language of binding these things around your neck, again, that comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Speaking there of of the, the laws and commandments of God. Now, Proverbs isn't telling us that we literally need to do this today, although some of the most pious Jewish people over the years have done this. They've literally tied little boxes to their wrists or to their necks uh, with little bits of scripture written inside them. But the language is urging us in the strongest possible terms to keep God's wisdom and his commands as close to us as we can. Instead of being stiff-necked, stubborn, as God's people are often described in the Old Testament. Instead of being stiff-necked, we're to be, if you like, scripture-necked. We're to have God's word as close to us as we can. We're to stick to the path of wisdom, like the yoke on the oxen, guiding them in the way that they're to go. And so here are uh, the urgings, the demands of the father on his son, the first demand that he remember wisdom. But notice that the father doesn't just urge the son to do these things, friends. He also gives him motivations. He gives him encouragements to remember wisdom. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Let your heart keep my commandments. Why? For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. The word peace there, again, is is so often the case in Scripture. 
it's not just the idea of an absence of conflict, which every nation state longs for in our world today. We, we want there to be no violence, but it's more than that. It's a sense of completeness. It's a sense of contentment and purpose in your life that physically, not, not just that you're at peace physically, but spiritually. A sense of knowing the way in which you're going and knowing that that way is right. Knowing that you're in right relationship with God. He says in verse 4, having told the Son to bind steadfast love and faithfulness, he says in verse 4, then you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Binding God's word close to his friends opens up our way for us. It, it, it adds prosperity and blessing to our lives. And again, he is speaking here generally. He's saying those who remember what matters, who remember God and his word generally speaking, we will live fuller, longer, more peaceful, more joyful, more purposeful lives than those who forget and ignore the wisdom of God. Now we know that some of that might not always be the case. We know that Christians sometimes, sadly, die young. We know that Christians in some parts of the world in particular go through dreadful difficulty, physically and, and practically speaking. And we see examples of it in scripture as well, no more so than Job, of course, who suffered terribly despite giving himself to the wisdom of God and, and loving God and honoring God. So Proverbs is not promising us health, wealth, and a stress-free life, friends, in the most superficial sense. But nonetheless, as one commentator puts it, all things being equal, those who follow God's way of living as taught by the wise father will live longer than those who flaunt those same commands. And it's always helpful to think of these things with an eternal perspective. That, he, that eternal life is ours if we walk in the way of wisdom. That eternal death and misery is in store for those who follow the ways of foolishness. But there is a, a general principle for life here and now as well. Think of the well-known story of Joseph, for example. I'm sure, boys and girls, you know the story of Joseph well. Who did experience his fair share of hardship. More than his fair share, you might say, humanly speaking. And yet he remembered God's commands. He had them bound around his neck, so to speak. So that, as we read in Genesis 39, 4, when he found himself a slave in Potiphar's house, it says, Joseph found favor. Same word we see here, grace. Proverbs 3, verse 4. Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And we know it was the same when Joseph ended up in the jail and it was the same when Joseph uh, ended up in the government of Egypt. Or think even more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was the Holy Spirit not especially working to remind us of Proverbs 3 when he led Luke to write the words of Luke 2.52 which we read earlier. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour. That word again. With God and man. See friends it can be the case and it often will be the case that our remembering of God's covenant love and his commandments and his wisdom leads to greater blessing here and now than for those who do not have those things bound around them. If you approach your work 
as mundane as you sometimes find it, as frustrating as your colleagues may sometimes be, if you approach it with the attitude of wanting to please the God who has so graciously saved you and blessed you and enabled you to do that work, then it's very possible that your hard work, your diligence, your honesty will advance you in your work more than others who have a poor attitude to their work. If you approach the stresses and strains of life which you will face, not with bellyaching and moaning, but with a sense of the peace that you have from remembering the word of God and his steadfast love and faithfulness, then you will have a contentment and a perspective and a joy even in the midst of those troubles that the foolish of our world cannot have. Wisdom is found, friends, in remembering what matters. Do you make a point of remembering what matters? Do you, as the psalmist, and as the psalmist says, and as the writer here says, you have God's word stored up, written in your heart. We were thinking about this this morning. I said earlier, we don't need to literally have it tied around our neck or our wrist. But it would be no bad thing. It would be wise, in fact, to have it written somewhere in front of you. Maybe on the lock screen of your phone or your tablet or your laptop. Maybe around your home where you'll see it each day as you, as you do the, the dishes, work at your desk, put your children to bed. Do we make any effort to remember what God, to remember what matters, to remember what God has said? I remember being in the home of uh, of a fellow minister once and I noticed that above his television screen there was a little verse and I'm failing to remember the reference just now but I think it was either from Job I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a woman lustfully or it was something along those lines that maybe it was the verse not uh, set my eyes not to look at any worthless thing I can't remember exactly the verse but you see the purpose of it he was reminding himself and his family anytime they sat down to watch anything on TV, not to look at worthless things. Whether it's a Bible reading plan, a Bible memorization plan, a a good podcast of preaching or teaching, wisdom is found, friends, in in binding God's truth around, around our necks, writing it not just somewhere we can physically see it, but writing it on the tablets of our heart so that like Joseph and Daniel and Mary and the Lord Jesus, we find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So wisdom demands that we remember what matters. Secondly, wisdom demands your total trust. Wisdom demands your total trust. This is verses five to eight. These are well-known and very well-loved and often quoted words. Proverbs three, verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In other words, friends, trust in the Lord is unconditional. You're entrusting your whole life, big and small decisions, into his hands. There's a sense here of allowing someone to take the weight. I remember the first time, it was probably at one of our summer camps, the opportunity to go abseiling down a rock face. Uh, And I say rock face, it was probably no higher than these windows, but in my mind anyway, it was a sheer rock face. And um, I'd never had this experience before. You have to lean back. You have, the, you have the harness around you. And you just have to lean back and start making your way down this wall. Trusting. Putting all your weight in this harness and trusting that it can take your weight. And that nothing bad is going to happen. It's a bit of a, a nerve-wracking experience. 
And this command of God in Proverbs 3 verse 5 is telling us to do that same thing spiritually. To lean all our weight, to to entrust ourselves to someone else, to believe that God can bear the weight of your life and your issues and your worries better than you can by yourself. And again, the meism of our culture would tell us that we're experienced enough and smart enough and wealthy enough to figure it all out for ourselves. Our culture believes, perhaps more than any other for several centuries, that the individual should just make their own decisions, regardless of what impact it might have on anyone else. The Bible says that is total foolishness. Why is it so foolish to trust in yourself? The reason, friends, is because of our sin. Our hearts by nature are sinful. They're corrupted. They're entirely untrustworthy. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 14, 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's the the sickness and the sinful orientation of the human heart. Our world says, follow your heart. The Bible says, don't follow your heart. It's the worst thing you can do. You can't trust it. And as well as that, it's not just foolish to trust in ourselves because of our sin. It's also foolish, friends, because we are such small, limited, finite beings. Whether we die young or old, we will experience just the tiniest slither of life in this world. Have you ever walked into one of the great libraries of the world? Looked at all those hundreds of thousands of books and realized how much you don't know? Have you ever browsed through holiday brochures or watched one of Sir David Attenborough's films and realized how little of the world we really understand? Wise living starts when we realize how foolish it is to lean on that finite, frail, tiny little slither of understanding and how much better it is to lean all of our weight upon the infinite, all-knowing creator God. And this requires great humility, of course. And in many ways, this whole passage we're looking at tonight, I did think about trying to bring out the theme of humility in every heading, but really, humility is, is at the heart of what we're looking at here in these verses. Or to put it another way, the Bible, as the Bible often does, we see in these verses the need to humble ourselves. Uh, humility is an action word in Scripture. As far as I'm aware, the Bible never says simply be humble. But lots of times scripture says humble yourself or humble yourselves. What does that look like? Humbling yourself is the decision to pray before you start planning. Again, it ties in a lot with what we were looking at this morning. That not just those extended times of prayer, hopefully, that we can have in the morning or before we go to bed, but other times in the day if we if we find ourselves in a situation that's baffling us, that's worrying us, that we bring it to the Lord in prayer, that we not just keep on going and trust in ourselves. It's an act of humility to choose to read God's word thoughtfully and carefully, to meditate upon it each day, to believe that there is insight there, that there is wisdom there, even if we don't immediately see it, even if whatever we want to look at on our phone might seem more appealing. Young people, you need to get into the habit early in life of humbling yourselves by going to God's word and humbling yourselves also by seeking the wise advice of others who know God's word 
better than you do. Your parents, maybe your CY leaders, your elders. One preacher says, often when young people do seek advice, what they're really seeking is someone to confirm what they already want to do. And it's not just young people that do that, but maybe particularly it's, it's, they're prone to it. We're not just to be seeking people out to affirm what we want to hear. Again, that's a mark of our very foolish culture. Look at verse 7 here. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Don't be thinking it's going to be a misery to trust in God. It's going to be refreshing to trust in God. The particular word there for healing, it only appears in this form this one time in the Old Testament. But in context we see here, it's the idea of finally getting that ice cold drink of water on a warm day when your mouth is parched. And it's that feeling of refreshment that you have from entrusting yourself to God and not trusting only in yourself. Notice what else he says in Proverbs 3 verse 6. In all your ways, he says, uh, and our translation here has acknowledge him, but literally it is know him. In all your ways, know him. And again, we need to understand what these words mean in Scripture. The word knowing here, it's, it's not just a, a passing acquaintance. It's, it's knowing someone deeply. It's having close fellowship with someone. Uh, the, the Hebrew language uses this sometimes as a euphemism for the deepest, intima- <coughs> the deepest intimacy even between a man and wife. We read in Genesis, Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a son. And so this is knowing someone Deeply and personally as much as two people can. It's what Christ intended when he called his first disciples. God willing we'll, we'll get to that passage in two weeks time. Uh, didn't get to it this morning. But in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus calls his first disciples and says follow me. He says come after me. That's the call of a teacher who wants the student to know everything about them. To observe everything about them. From that moment on, when Jesus called his disciples, they could never make any decision without reference to him ever again. Their lives were oriented around what he was saying and where he was going and what he was doing. Likewise here, the writer urges us to know God in all our ways, to walk with Christ in in all our ways. One writer compares the demands, the language of verses 5 and 6 here to the commitments of a couple getting married. Verses 5 and 6 here are like our wedding vows. Once you've taken your wedding vows, you never make decisions again, big or small, without considering or knowing the opinions, needs, concerns of your spouse. You imagine you met up for coffee with a friend who is married. And they just never talked about their spouse, not even in passing. Never mentioned them once. That would be bizarre. You'd be thinking there's something wrong there. Alarm bells would be ringing in your mind as to what's going on in that marriage. Yet as Christians, do we not sometimes act that way when we make financial decisions? Family decisions? Do we not sometimes hold conversations about everything from the weather to the government? Without any mention of the ways and the will of God. You might ask, well practically how do we demonstrate our trust in God? Well again I think a lot of it begins with prayer. Proverbs 5 and 6 is inviting us into the place of prayer. Again it's that act of humility. 
It's that childlike neediness that we thought about this morning. A few months ago when the Reverend Peter Lockridge was with us, he led us through a study of Psalm 91 and made reference to uh, the story of um, Corrie ten Boom. Uh, and Corrie ten Boom once said, any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. Any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. Here is wisdom, friends, not to rely on our own frail, finite, foolish understanding, but to confess our need of the wisdom of God and to seek his face for the wisdom that we need. So wisdom demands that we remember what matters. Wisdom demands our total trust. And thirdly and finally this evening, wisdom demands that we give away now to gain in the end. Wisdom demands that we give away now to gain in the end. And this is verses 9 to 12. If you look at verse 9, Honour the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Notice the paradox. There's something here that sounds as if it doesn't make sense. Give away your wealth so that you'll have your, your life will be bursting with wealth. How is that possible? Well, once again, friends, the writer of Proverbs is tapping into the laws of God, if I can put it that way. It was part of the Old Testament law, of course, that the first fruits of your harvest go to God, that they be offered to God, and that a tenth, a tithe of the people's wealth be dedicated to the priests. Deuteronomy 26 deals with that. And the word honour here would be, again, a more vivid word for the first readers. It has the sense of weightiness. And so you imagine a man, an Israelite farmer getting to the end of harvest, gathering it in, feeling the weight of it in his hands. And imagine he knows just by the weight of it, this is a good harvest. He's thinking of the bread he can put on the table for his family, maybe the equipment he can buy for next year's work. But then he suddenly remembers a tenth of this. And the tenth was just the starting point. There was much more giving on top of that. But a tenth, the first, the best of this is to go into the Lord's service. Some of the weight of this is to be heaped onto the Lord's house, so to speak. Or think of the opposite. Think of a farmer gathering in his harvest and by the weight of it, he knows this is a lean harvest. Our meal portions might be a bit smaller this winter. And then he suddenly remembers a tenth of this, of maybe this subpar harvest, has to go into the Lord's service as well. See, friends, here's where our trust in God is tested. Are we going to know him in all our ways? Are we going to trust him when it's hard to do so? Are we going to believe that he can give us our daily bread? Are we going to believe his word that says giving away generously is a far more blessed thing than squirreling away selfishly? Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, having had his interaction with the rich young man, Jesus said in Mark 10, 29, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and he goes on, in the age to come, eternal life. 
Ultimately, the friends, the path of wisdom is the path to blessing. Even if it involves giving away the best, the weightiness of what we have now, life, prosperity, far more than we have ever given away, is going to be put in our hands in glory. And so wisdom demands of us, give away now to gain in the end. But it's not just our money that wisdom calls us, or our wealth that wisdom calls us to give away. It's also that, again, that sense of self-reliance, that sense of being in our comfort, our, our, our comfort spot or our, uh, looking after ourselves first and foremost. Look at verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father, the son in whom he delights. One of the greatest marks of wisdom we can have is to be willing to accept correction. To realize, in fact, we will need correction, that we are just not always going to get everything right. And again, don't want to pick on them too much, but our younger generation in particular maybe need to hear this. Some of you older folk have had the experience of giving young people the opportunity of an apprenticeship, uh, to learn a trade, to do a job, to learn a job. And before they've even started, they're telling you what their salary demands are. The assumption of some of the most work-shy, inexperienced young people today is, I know what I'm worth. I deserve the best. And any attempt to correct me is an attack against me. The Christian is not to be like that. Verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The father knows. The son isn't always going to want to hear the father's discipline. But don't grow weary of it. Don't despise it. When it comes to money or our speech or our thoughts or our relationships, sooner or later, we're going to find something in God's word that we turn our noses up at. We're going to find some command that we'd rather not bother with that. Too hard. Not for me. Not right now. But we need to give away our preferences and our self-confidence to gain a greater fear of the Lord, a greater understanding of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. The writer to the Hebrews quotes from, he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 in Hebrews chapter 12 when he reminds us of the supreme example and the unique sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Hebrews 12 verse 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is no one, friends, who has given away more of himself, who has sacrificed more of himself to gain so much more in return than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one who has so perfectly stored up God's word in his heart that he might not sin against God than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one who has bound steadfast love and faithfulness so close to his heart than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one who had to entrust himself to his Father in painful circumstances more than the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says that the word trust here in verse 5, it carries the sense of lying helplessly face downwards. Just lying out, vulnerable, helpless, entrusting yourself to God. 
And isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus did as he was hanging on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There he was, spread out, helpless, forsaken for a time, and yet trusting in the wise plan of his Father. Are you the master of your fate, the captain of your soul? Or have you realized how helpless you truly are, a limited, finite, foolish sinner by nature, and that the wisest thing you can do is entrust yourself entirely into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ? In a world that boasts in self and all that self can do, God says to us this evening, do not forget my teaching. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And looking unto Jesus, we say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen.